You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. I'm Shonda Rhimes, and we're bringing you Dominant Stories, created by Shondaland Audio in partnership with the Dove Self-Esteem Project. I know what it's like to be so in on something that you like listen to the albums constantly and you read all the literature you can and it's all you talk about and it overtakes your your thoughts, right? It just consumes you. Yeah. So when I see that happening to something that I was a part of, my God, I feel so lucky. Hey, I'm Jess Wiener, and this is Dominant Stories, the podcast that helps us reclaim and rewrite the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, about our bodies, our beauty, our creativity, and our identities. Hey, everybody, I'm Jess, and welcome back to Dominant Stories. You've heard me talk a lot on this show about the relationship between the stories that we tell ourselves and the way that we creatively express ourselves out in the world. Because I believe that when our dominant stories run our lives, when they've gone unexamined, they can actually stop us from taking creative risks that bring us closer to a life that we long for. And by the way, that could be in the arts and sports and business and education because, spoiler alert, I actually believe we all express ourselves creatively in some fashion. But how do you manage that inner narrative so that it doesn't get in the way of your genius? So on today's show, I am going to be talking to a real-life musical genius who also happens to be a dear childhood friend of mine, and that is Alex Lacamoire. Alex is an award-winning music director, arranger, and composer. You know him best for his work on Broadway's critically acclaimed shows. Oh, little shows like Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, and In the Heights. He's won three Tonys, four Grammys, and an Emmy. And most recently, Alex composed the score for Netflix Vivo, and he's serving as the executive music producer on the film Tick, Tick, Boom. And if that wasn't already so impressive, Alex is a co-founder of this incredible organization called Muse, which provides access and internships and mentorships to support historically marginalized people of color to cultivate more racial equity in theater and music departments. He also, if that wasn't enough, is a gem of a human you will soon see with warmth and grace that is on par with his talent. We've known each other for over 30 years, and I have never interviewed him professionally before. So here we go. I can't wait for you to listen. Let's dig in. 
Let's okay. Let's talk about us because we've known each other since I think we were twelve. Oh my god, right? that's probably right. Yeah, junior high school, yeah. Southwood Middle. Southwood Middle School. We went to the same performing arts middle school and high schools. Yes. So here's my recollection of you as baby Alex, which was like <laughs> so sweet, already so ridiculously. I know you do a million of these kind of interviews around your career, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the man behind the music. Because <laughs> for me, I remember falling in love with storytelling. I was thinking about this. It actually came when my sister and my dad and I would act out our bedtime stories. So my dad mm. worked a lot, but always made sure he was home to put us to bed. And But he would never read the stories. We would always act them out. And I can remember <laughs> it like five, six, seven, like – that was where I knew I wanted to play and tell stories. And for you, like, do you have a first memory of falling in love with music? Is that a conscious memory for you? Of falling in love with music for the first time. I know about that just from stories that people have told me. And I have a cousin that told me that like when I was two, I would sit in front of the stereo speakers and just like stare into the speaker <laughs> and just be transfixed by the music. And I'm told by my mom that before I even knew how to read, I knew what record I wanted to listen to because I associated a certain song to the logo of the 45. And I would oh, yeah. say, oh, mom, I want to hear Blue By You by Linda Ronstadt or whatever. And she would grab a certain record. And I would be like, no, mom, it's not that one. It's the other one. And like, <laughs> how did I know? I just like knew by the color of the logo of the on the record. So I guess for whatever reason, like my love of music has always been around. And even when I had a toy piano, I vaguely, barely remember playing that thing. But that apparently is what led my parents to say, oh, wow, he has an interest in music. I mean, who knows if I was actually hitting the right notes as I played along to the radio. <laughs> Maybe I was close, you know, but since then, music has just been a part of my life. It's how like I, I measure things in my life. It's how I associate certain feelings, certain times. It's how I remember dates. Yeah. Music kind of saved me a little bit. Tell me about that. I, I just felt so awkward as a kid. And you know, I had a hard time finding people around me that loved music as much as I did. And mm. my music was kind of like this weird superpower that I didn't really get to display. And it wasn't until people realized, oh, Alex plays piano, that I started to like not become mm -hmm. popular, but like I guess just had something that people could point to or, or relate to me on. Yeah. That's why going to our performing arts junior high school, like that's where I really started to click. And like even mm -hmm. meeting you and, and meeting all the kids in the theater department, Jess, I can't tell mm -hmm. you how seismic a shift that was in my life to be able to meet you and, and to meet uh, everyone around you. That really just like, it was just that, that communal aspect, that family yeah. thing that theater provides and what I saw that you all had. And what I saw that you were all inviting me to be a part of, right? Yeah. Because like me to get invited to like the cast parties, right? To me to get to know <laughs> your mom who was so instrumental and in, in like kind of like being the, this big mother hen to, to all mm -hmm. these kids. It was just this family feeling that I was just wanting so much in my social life. And that really provided it for me. So it was all through music and all through art. Yeah. They used to call my mom drama mama. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting to hear you talk about that time in our life because when we're at that age and stage of life, like our dominant story is about where we fit, who we mm -hmm. are, yep. if we're good enough is obviously so rampant. You know, Sarah Bareilles and I were talking about this in like our very first episode that like theater is the place where the misfits go, where we fit. Yeah. 
sort of like always a little bit being on the outside. And then when you play together and when you make something together, you form this family. And you were always such an incredible part of that. But take us back to like that mindset for you as a young kid about like the dominant narratives because you were saying you felt awkward or you felt like, do you remember the stories you would tell yourself about yourself at that age? Did you have kind of a negative narrative running through your head? The first one that comes to mind is like, oh my God, girls don't like me. <laughs> like that was a big thing for me. Like I definitely was in love with girls in third grade and like, <laughs> oh my gosh, she's never going to notice me and, and all that. Uh, that was a very big dominant story for me. And the other thing for me was like, oh, wow, I'm not popular enough. I'm not cool enough. Yeah. You know, because you would see TV shows and movies like, oh, there's this yep. group of people and they're well known and they're well liked and they get, you know, watching all those John Hughes movies and like, <laughs> see, wow, what is it like to be at a crazy party like that? Like, I, I had no idea. And I wanted yeah. that so much. There was, it was definitely a thing that I wanted so much to be a part of that I just didn't feel like I could be a part of. And like I said, it wasn't until this music thing, until people saw, oh, wow, Alex can do something. It, like, I have this vivid memory of being at the cast party for what was probably Oliver or, or you know, uh, or Finian's Rainbow, I don't know. But my memory is, is at someone's house and it's probably 11 o'clock at night and I'm probably, I'm going to say 13 years old and I'm at the piano and I cannot see anything around me except for people all surrounding me around the piano singing the hits of the day that I'm playing and people are singing. And like, oh my God, people are singing because I'm playing. Like if I stop playing, they won't sing. So all of a sudden there's this <laughs> like, there's this relationship that's being formed and like I'm yeah. making, and then it is magic in a way, right? Because like you play these notes and they go into the air and people feel inspired to sing. But like once I felt that ability to like make a shift in something mm -hmm. and do it through my music, which I loved anyway, it just was so easy. I just felt at home. I think one of those cast parties at least was at my house because I do have oh, those memories and probably some like pictures that I'll have to dig out somewhere <laughs> of, of us. The hair was like the memorable moment for me in school, <laughs> man. Like the higher the hair, <laughs> the closer to God. I just like, <laughs> um, you know, I don't think I ever noticed or knew that you wore hearing aids in school. Really? Did you wear them when we were? Yeah, I never, ever noticed really? that. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah, as I was like, I mean, I, I know about your hearing loss, but I don't think I ever like remember that being a part of how I thought about you or even like, oh, wow. I, yeah, it was not conscious for me, but obviously it was, I know it was conscious for you because you've talked about like what that was like for you. And I wanted to take a little bit of a moment to have you speak more about that. When did you start wearing them? Like what did mom or dad notice first? Like, I'm curious because I don't know that part of your story as well. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think I might know why maybe you uh, don't relate hearing aids with me. And that's probably yeah. because at some point in junior high, I did stop wearing them because I was self-conscious about them. Interesting. So to answer your question, I think my mom first noticed when I was around four that she would call me from the other room and I wouldn't hear her. Or mm -hmm. she would notice how close I was sitting to the TV set. And I would say, oh, it's because I can't hear if I'm, I'm far away. And it was around that time that I got tested for my hearing and I got fitted for hearing aids. And back then, this is like, what, 1980 or so. They were big. Yeah, the technology at the time was they would fit behind the ear and uh, you would just see this, this apparatus just hanging at the top of your, your earlobe. And I think I wore them all throughout until I got to junior high. And then somewhere along the line, 
because they're not covered by insurance. My family couldn't mm-hmm. afford a pair, so I only rocked one hearing aid <laughs> because it's, one was better than none. Yeah. And then I just distinctly remember in that certain age where it's puberty and it's subconsciousness. And enough people were asking me, hey, what's that thing behind your ear mm-hmm. that I didn't want them to ask anymore? So I just stopped wearing them altogether. I just didn't. That to me was another way to not fit in. Another way to not be cool is to wear your hearing aid. Yeah, of course. And as a result, I missed so much just, I mean, like my thing was, okay, I always had to sit at the front of the class in order to hear the teacher. Yep. Friends, jokes would happen and I would be like, what, what'd they say? What'd they say? Mm-hmm. I still remember being in high school and my girlfriend at the time, uh, they had a big viewing party at her house to watch Silence of the Lambs because it was like the hot movie at the time. I remember. And it was like 20 people in a dark room and the TV had to be so soft because her mom was asleep in the other room. But she was cool with us being there watching and I missed the entire movie. I couldn't hear a fucking thing. Wow. Because I couldn't in a big public room be like, what'd they say? What'd they say? Like after the third time, it's like, Alex, stop. And that's what started to happen for me. The shift was somewhere along the line I started to just sense people getting aggravated about me asking them all the time. Because, mm. you know, they say, hey, the sky is blue. What? The sky is blue. What? The sky is blue, Alex. Right. When that happens enough times, you start to you cower a little oh, bit. Yeah, you shrink. You start to sometimes just not ask and just let things go by and, and act as if you you understood. Yeah. You know, it became the thing. It's like, oh, Alex, he doesn't understand. They just laugh off the fact that Alex didn't catch the joke. And I think once I got to college mm. and I met enough new people by that point, the technology of hearing aids had changed and they fit inside the ear and people don't necessarily notice them. So I've known people for years who have been around me as I'm wearing hearing aids and they don't notice that I wear them. Yeah. Which is so odd to me because if someone else is wearing hearing aids, that's the first thing I notice that they have hearing aids. Of course. I want to play this clip that you did for our hometown, an interview that you did for our hometown paper, the Miami Herald, where you talk about how that hearing loss transformed the way you connected to music. Okay. My hearing loss probably makes me listen a little harder, makes me listen a a little more closely to music. And I also feel like the fact that I don't hear, like, uh, you know, it's hard for me to hear someone when they're talking very far away. So because of that, it allows me to kind of live in my own bubble. (laughs) So I think that actually developed a lot of focus for me because I can really focus in and zero in on music and just tune out the world and tune out everything around me. Maybe because of uh, the fact that I have to work to listen, work to hear, makes me kind of uh, get into finer details of music that uh, by now they're just very second nature to me. But uh, I often wonder like, is you know my handicap actually an asset? What do you think little Alex would hear about hearing you say that <laughs> now? You know, it's uh, I-, I wonder what little Alex would think because I don't know that I ever thought to myself, oh, my hearing is going to get in the way of me enjoying music. And that's where I feel like I'm lucky. Yeah. That it was never a detriment. Like it was just very apparent that like my hearing loss was not getting in the way of me playing music and having it feel like my language and having it feel like something that I I, I felt drawn to or, or felt that I was good at. Mm-hmm. As kids, we're all taught that Beethoven was deaf at a certain point in his life. So maybe somewhere in my mind, I'm like, oh, it was there. Yeah, it was there. So maybe (laughs) that seed was planted. I bring this forward, too, because I think for those people who are listening who might have their own stories about abilities or that they have or they don't have or they wish they had, keep them from Mm -hmm. creating and going after what they really want to do and be in the world. I agree. I agree. And I'm fortunate that I had a lot of support around me, right? I had parents that 
believed in yes. what I did. You know, I had, I had Rick Adams, our, our mm-hmm. directing teacher. Yeah, he was the director of our program. Yeah, the director of the program. So those are people who were like, hey, Alex can do this. Like, hey, here's something that he's good at and would lift me up in that way. It was that support that helped me. You know, just those, those people who can kind of like recognize something and zero in on that. And that's what, what built me up. All right, all right. I call time out for a second. Let's take a short break to hear these messages. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. All right, now back to our convo. I want to talk about kind of this journey. So you went to Berkeley College of Music, and now at this point, you said there was always this moment in your life where you're like, okay, I'm going to be doing music forever. When you thought about going into the industry, because I think that's what those colleges also begin to prep you for, right, is Mm -hmm. thinking about like life afterwards. Were you already aware or thinking about how the industry has gatekeepers for whose stories get told and don't get told? You know, I think there's definitely something about when you're young and when you're learning that there's a world that can seem a little impenetrable in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned taking trips up to New York to see Broadway. I don't know about you, but you know, as a kid in Miami, Broadway felt so far away. It felt almost impossible. Yep. Much in the same way where, you know, even being at school, let's say for example, a clinic would be held and you'd see Will Calhoun, the drummer from Living Color, do a clinic. Mm-hmm. And I would see what he's doing. I'm like, oh my God, that guy's in a rock band and he's touring the world. Oh my God. Like that felt like something I would want to do and yet felt really impossible. Mm. And then through life happening, through opportunities happening, through fate, through chance, whatever it is, you kind of get to these rooms and to get to these situations and you feel as though you don't belong. And yet all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, I totally belong. Like I totally know what I'm doing. (laughs) Oh, these are human beings just like us. These are people just like us. They've got their issues just like us, right? They've got their Mm hangups just like us. I know I've been in situations where I've said, hey, I, I don't think I can do this. And there's someone just above you who's like, oh, no, 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 you totally can. I'm like, oh, hmm. okay. If they think I can do it, then I, I I can do it. And it's just that little help from someone or that little suggestion or that little opportunity to let you know, oh, this world is normal. Mm. It is not that much different from what it is that you are already doing. Yeah. 
So I don't know that I felt like that they were like gatekeepers who like decide, oh, you get in, you don't, da, 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 da. But I know that they definitely felt like there was another sphere that like, oh my God, that thing's rotating over there. Like, how do I get there? Can I get, get there? there? Yeah, do I belong there? Am I worthy of it? I'm curious about the moment when you tackle multiple projects at one time, if you do that, or when you were building in your career, if you were taking on lots of projects, do you get scared when you're taking on multiple things? Do you ever doubt if you can do it? Do those dominant voices kind of come back in and are like, oh boy, you took on too much or you're not going to get this done? Like, I'm curious what that dialogue sounds like. Yes to all of it. Um, (laughs) It's always been this way for me. Mm. I was always trying to like balance a million things at once and have music be a part of it. So I guess if I think back to even being in junior high and like trying to deal with like the eight classes of like the the of the math and the science and the history and with the yep. three extra classes of choir and theory and piano. And after that, having to do the homework and doing the rehearsal for their community theater production of Pippin Down the Street, and at the same time, practicing your classical piano so that you could play a a solo piano concert in Merida City, Mexico (laughs) at the age of 13, which I did. I was doing all that stuff. Yeah. Same thing with with high school. And I do have memories of my mom being like, you are taking on too much. And me just like finding a way to push through it. And Mm. things kind of fell by the wayside. Like there were certain books for English class that I didn't read. You know, there's certain <laughs> tests that I could have done better at. But in the music world, like that's where I got the straight A's. So yeah, there are times, yes, in my life where I, I feel like I'm biting off a little bit more than I can chew because what gets sacrificed then is my sleep, my uh, relaxed time, my time with my wife, uh, my time with my mm-hmm. family, all, all that, it goes away. Yeah, I'm learning now, I'm 46 now, like I am just starting to notice, oh my God, I can't do this stuff now that I used to be able to do in my 20s. Yeah. The all-nighters and the uh, the degree of stuff, like it's now starting to feel too much to the point that even I'm saying, yo, this is too much. And this past couple of years, particularly for me, was, was a pretty stressful and difficult one in terms of like things being on top of each other. But what's difficult is that they are all things I wanted to do. They are all things mm-hmm. that felt important to me. And they were things that I would have regretted not being a part of and things that I felt like I learned something from along the way. Yeah. I guess the price I paid is some extra stress and you know some bags under my eyes. <laughs> but I now am going to be just more careful about what it is that I do say yes to because I am feeling the want, the desire to slow down. Yeah. I want to travel. There's like, countries I haven't been to, right? There's experiences I haven't had. There's like people that I haven't been uh, giving my devotion to that I'd like to. And and I feel like I can now. Yeah. Well, there's this compensatory time, right? I think it's always this pendulum that swings back and forth. So I know you probably have answered a million Hamilton questions before, but (laughs) one of the things that I'm thinking about is when you take on a project like that or when you're working on a project like that, did you face a moment of doubt in working on a show like that of that magnitude? Or was the trick that y'all didn't really know what kind of magnitude it was going to be yet? So you're sort of unfettered by that pressure. But I'm curious about whether you had creator's block or if any doubt sort of spring up in the creation of that. Well, I'll tell you two stories. One of them is when we were in rehearsals for Off-Broadway for Hamilton, before anyone had seen the show in public, right? I mean, we'd had a couple of workshops, but we hadn't done like the production with like the costumes and the lights and all that stuff. 
I remember having a moment in rehearsal with uh, Tommy Kaler, director, mm-hmm. and I said to him, Tommy, listen, I know this is like an amazing piece. I know that this is the best thing Lin-Manuel has ever written. I'm so proud of everything we're doing. But dude, are people really going to pay money to see a show about American history told through hip hop? Like, is it going to land? Are people really going to get it? <laughs> I truly wasn't sure. Yeah. I thought at best it would be a critical success because the writing I knew was powerful. So that I recognized. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know like, if the public, the world, the country, whatever, people were ready to receive this message told in this way. And back to the doubts, uh, you know, in terms of the writing of it all. Like, mm-hmm. it was so important for me as the orchestrator for the show to get it right, quote unquote, because I knew what Lynn Manuel was providing was such gold. I didn't want to be the one to mess it up. Right. And I wanted to take as much time questioning every move I made <laughs> and demoing every orchestration that I wrote to make sure that there was no stone left unturned to make sure that it felt right. So like I took about eight months end to end to orchestrate the show, wow. which is very out of the ordinary because most Broadway shows get orchestrated in probably four weeks, if that. Wow. Because what happens is, you know, the show will be in rehearsal and an orchestrator is brought on very late in the game comparatively to the rest of the production. And they come in and listen once the number is already staged in rehearsal, and then they go home and write on their own time. But I knew that I had to orchestrate ahead of time because I was going to be in the room eight hours a day playing piano and making these decisions. So I had to be as prepared as possible. Mm. I know when I started, I had a hard time just getting the momentum going. And the first six or seven charts Mm. I did were just fine. And I knew as I was doing them, they're just fine but I had to keep going and I had to keep moving. And then I hit my stride probably around the, the eighth or the ninth and the 10th one. I'm like, oh, now I get it. I know what the world is. I know what the palette is. And then I could go back to those first seven or eight tunes and redo them with a different mindset. The end of the process is just easier. Once you have your palette, once you have your, your framework, Interesting. then you can kind of flow and, and sail a little bit more easily. But the front half was definitely like just a lot of kind of banging your head against the wall. And, and But you got to push through it. You have to know that you, it's not too late. You can come back to it, but you just got to keep moving and, and trust that the, that the right answer will reveal itself over time. That's like the master class of, for creators, I think, and writers in particular, but all artists, which is like, just get that crappy first draft done. Right. Like get it out there, get it out of your brain, your heart, your soul, and like then shape it from there. And then edit. Yep. Absolutely. And then edit. Yeah, I love that. You had commercial success and success before Hamilton, but then Hamilton is like its own universe. And when you start to see the fandom at the level that ham fams have, rabid and (laughs) passionate and incredible that love is, what stories do you tell yourself then about success? Like what's coming up for you when you hit that kind of pinnacle? What comes up for me is just immense gratitude for... Mm -hmm being able to be a part of something that has that level of impact. That's the dream, right? And in terms of like, when I see that kind of fandom for the show, for some people, there is a level of obsession about it. Mm -hmm. And I get it because I'm obsessed about what I do. I'm obsessed about (laughs) music. I remember being obsessed about Rush, obsessed about Beatles, obsessed about, you know, Chopin, whatever. I still am. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I know what it's like to be so in on something that you like listen to the albums constantly and you read all the literature you can and it's all you talk about and it overtakes your your thoughts, right? It just consumes you. Yeah. So when I see that 
happening to something that I was a part of, my God, I feel so lucky. Like mm. if ever anyone recognizes who I am on the street, I'm always bewildered and amazed. They know who, who I am, A, and B, that also shows, wow, they know about Hamilton enough that they know like the people involved. That to me is yeah. akin to like buying an, a, a CD, right? When we were kids and looking at the, the credits because we want to see who did this and who did that. Who made it? Because we wanted to know, hey, who made this thing and what else did they make so that I could learn what it is that they did. So yeah, all this to say that I... And just honored when I see that kind of mm. fandom and when I see people who express how the show has shaped them or what it means to them. That's wonderful because I feel like, oh my gosh, like I'm a part of it. And I, I it's just special. It truly is. Remember when we were, I think Felipe, my husband, you and Ileana, your wife, we were getting ice cream in Santa Monica when you guys were out here and those girls in line behind us. Salt and straw. <laughs> salt and straw. Oh yeah. Remember? And they were like totally geeking out about you. My and again, God. I was thinking like, you know, they recognized you and they were so excited to meet you. And I mean, does it get old? Like Grammys, Tonys, dude. Like, and I know that I know, like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's just being nominated that matters. No, dude, you won those Grammys and those Tonys. And I'm like, just again thinking, like, what does 12 year old Alex think about oh that? God. You're on a red oh. carpet with your smoking hot wife and your amazing career. <laughs> and like, <laughs> you're welcome, baby. <laughs> I mean, do you have those moments where you reconcile the kid who felt like, you didn't belong and that, you know, you'd never have love in that way. And like, do you have a moment in that gratitude and that recognition of like, look at where I am. I've transcended those stories. Yeah. I mostly feel it like if I'm with family, like if, if I'm home, like my mom, who is so supportive and so, so proud, like that, that's where I feel, that's where I, I get in tune with what that little kid was and like mm. how far away those, you know, and I can trace that back to my mom being a young eight-year-old girl, like in a farm out in the boondocks of Oriente in Cuba, you know, like how does yeah. like this girl who grew up, you know, go through whatever it is that she went through to meet whoever she met, to birth me, to do this stuff mm -hmm. that I achieved. Like I, I trace it back to that. And that, that's some shit. Seriously. It, it seems uh, impossible in a way. And yet it, it, here, here we are. And yeah. uh, I think about Tommy Kale, who says that a lot about Hamilton. I'm like, it, it seems like it couldn't exist, and yet it does. And uh, that's where I, I get present to it. I think when I come back to my family, that's when I realize, yeah. really, wow, this is amazing and, and unlikely. Hey, where are you going? There's so much more of this juicy convo coming right up. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.
We're back. Now let's get into our convo. I want to talk about sort of like the drive and the perfectionism in a way that encompasses your life at times. And I'm curious like how that kind of drive has impacted you know, friendships, relationships, like how you are learning to navigate that driving voice inside that makes excellent work product, but also requires a a balance, right? Mm-hmm. Or does it? I'm just, I'm curious your relationship to the stories around perfectionism. Yeah. You know, the price that I think we as musicians pay for that kind of level of specificity in what we do is just this social awkwardness that I know I addressed that earlier, but I mm-hmm. got to say that we are a rare breed. <laughs> the amount of care and focus and knowledge that we have to mass on a certain kind of thing means that I think other things are going to not get as uh, refined, shall we say. Yeah. The sacrifice is how we kind of navigate in the world. And listen, it's worth it for me. Back to what this call started at was like, hey, there's that piece of me that feels like, oh my God, like oh, I, I don't fit in. I don't belong to that. And yep. that I don't think will ever go away. That is going to be with me until my last breath, sorry to say. <laughs> and it's okay. I think once we come to terms that that's just the way life is and how you deal with that and how loud that voice gets and how much you listen to it, that you can navigate. But uh, it's kind of... Yeah. Uh, uh, empowering to learn, oh, that just is always there. What I can control is how loud it is. I think you've literally summarized what has been a whole season of conversations oh, around really? these dominant stories because I don't think they ever go away. I Mm-mm. think we learn how to invite them in, give them a seat at the table, listen to what their concerns are, and then figure out how to manage them. But I think we get better at managing them, mm-hmm. at challenging them, at rewriting them, yeah. of making friends with them. Um how as a creator do you hold on to the wonder of creating when the world can sometimes feel like a shit show? <laughs> like, oh, does music pull you out of that feeling? Does it save you there as well in the wonder of making things? So the work that I do is usually commission-based. And what I mean by that is I've not been the type of creator where I just generate something because I have this feeling that is bottled up inside that I need to express. Mm. I'm not a songwriter in that way. I'm always brought on to help someone fulfill a vision, really. So I guess I feel lucky in that the wonder for me is always in the fact that I'm actually serving other people. So for me, that's where the magic is, through the collaboration, truly. Hmm. And that's why I love what it is that I do. I'm always working with other people and getting to work with new people and getting new experiences and figuring out how that person works and how that person ticks. So for me, it's always new and fresh in that way. And I feel lucky that how I get to move through the world is through the work that I get to do with other people on their art. So I I love being a, a, a conduit in that way. That's really important to me. And then that through line that we've been talking about this whole time around the community that you find and how that fills you up, right? Even from little kid to now. Yeah. I know one of the things, though, I know that for you creating more diversity within music departments, Mm -hmm. um, both in the theater industry and and other systems are important to you. And you actually went a step further and you co-founded this amazing organization called Muse. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about that. Talk to me about that leap now into you have this success and this visibility, and now it's time to work on the visibility 
within music departments. So talk a little bit about Muse. So Muse stands for Musicians United for Social Equity. And the organization was mostly born out of the reckoning that our industry was taken to task for. And it was just a realization that like, oh my God, like if we look around most music departments for most shows and for most pits, there is definitely a lack of diversity when it comes to folks of color. Mm -hmm. And it became apparent to us how much power we as musicians have in terms of who gets asked to be in the room. And we talked about this earlier, right? About gatekeepers and, and what that is. And mm -hmm. I got to tell you, once the summer hit of last year and George Floyd's murder, even though there were many murders that led up to that, yep. but that is when people were really looking at, oh my gosh, like how are we populating our groups and our teams? And I remember at that moment, I thought to myself, oh wow, everyone is now going to be in this mindset and everyone is going to like really put this front and center on how they, they staff and how they populate panels and groups and, and teams. And I repeatedly kept, going into rooms and realizing, wait a second, no one is saying anything. Yeah. And I kept thinking like, oh, I'm not going to have to do that work. It doesn't have to be me. But then I realized, shit, I have to be the one raising my hand to be like, wait a second, there are no black people anywhere in this group. Mm -hmm. Like, where are the women? Where, where, like, I'm the only Latino? Like, what is going on here? And I kept thinking to myself like, oh, other people are going to be doing that. But I just realized, oh my God, if I don't do it, it's not going to be anybody. Mm -hmm. So it's this realization that you've got to do something different. You have to pass along knowledge. You have to mentor. You have to give access and you have to speak up. And I think that's really what I've been learning about Muse and the power that we have. And, and it's this weird thing where you feel sometimes as though you are powerless. Yes. When there are times that you actually really have way more power than you think. And who you invite into the room makes a big difference. Yep. And I will tie this into a story that relates to us, Jess. I remember being in ninth grade in junior high. This is, you know, high school still started at 10th grade. So we're about to leave Southwood. And I remember that there is this big dinner happening for the theater department. Now, mind you, I'm in the music department. And I was invited to the theater dinner by Mr. Adams. And I didn't know why, but I knew like, oh my God, like how cool. Like I love these <laughs> folks. I know like all of them. They're like buds and we perform and do all this. And what was amazing is that it was basically a night that was a dinner and like awards were given out, you know, best uh, commitment to, to, to show, yep. best whatever, da, 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 da. And then Mr. Adams like had an award, like a special one for me, just for being like the pianist for the group. Hmm. He extended a hand and said, hey, Alex, you be a part of this, like have a seat at this table, literally and metaphorically. And what a difference that made for me, like how included I felt and how this room I wanted to be in and he allowed me to be in that. And what a wonderful feeling that is. And to yeah. be able to give that to folks, especially if they feel like they can't be a part of that, if there's a systemic reason that prevents them from that happening, I just trace it back to how it was that I felt when someone extended that hand and asked me to be a part mm -hmm. of something and, and gave me recognition and gave me that boost of confidence and what that did for me. So like, why shouldn't we pay that back to other people? Yeah. Muse, I think, takes it one step further, which is really important, which is you have this incredible 
directory and database Mm -hmm. of eligible artists and musicians. And so what I love about it is because oftentimes systems, be it the music industry, film, TV, any industry, always talk about pipeline, right? Like we don't have the right pipeline. Well, that's kind of BS because (laughs) folks of color, folks of all genders exist. And a lot of it is access and relationship. And I think Muse does a beautiful job. And you had, I think, a sister site I was watching as well as Maestra, right? Yeah, Maestra, yeah. So there's not a shortage mm-hmm. of of folks to recommend and to champion and and to invite into the room. And speaking of the room where it happens, because I can't <laughs> like talk to you and not have a Hamilton <laughs> reference. I'm curious, like what advice you would give listeners who are trying to bring their story and their talent into the world, but haven't seen their stories represented mm-hmm. yet, haven't seen people like them orchestrate or you know, moderate a discussion or write a book or whatever their art is that they're bringing into the world, what would you tell somebody who is desiring to creatively self-express in the world but haven't seen that role model yet? You know, I take a page from Lin-Manuel's book, right? And the fact that he, as a Puerto Rican dude living in New York and loving music and loving theater, just felt like the show that he wanted to be in wasn't written yet. And he realized, oh my God, I need to write it. And again, you keep thinking other people more experienced than you or older than you or more established than you are going to do something. But you wake up one day and you realize, no, that person is me. So I would say if you have that need to express, if you have that thing that you need to see out there, just do it, just write it, just create it. And try to find your tribe, as I said earlier, because mm-hmm. what we do in theater requires a village. Yeah, You got to find the people who are going to help bring your thing to, to life. And I guarantee that those partners are out there. And sometimes it takes longer to find them. Sometimes you bang your head against the wall. But I think this is the time. Seriously. Because it's in the forefront. Like, if there are Latino writers, like people are looking for Latino music directors. People are looking for Latino writers and creators, all that stuff. Write something. If this is, you've wanted to get something produced, this is the time, you know? So like, don't mm-hmm. delay, let it happen. My hope is that by people like Lin-Manuel creating firsts in that way, hopefully that will allow other people to see, hey, I can do this too. Well, buddy, I'm so happy you're a part of my tribe and I'm so happy that we got a chance to to go down this road together. And I think you're right. Those dominant stories, those reasons why you haven't done it, shouldn't do it, couldn't do it, they're always going to be there. But the ability to overcome those, to do it in spite of being afraid, to do it in spite of not exactly knowing where it's going to lead you, that's the beauty of creativity. That's the beauty of self-expression yeah. um, and being able to follow that, finding your people relying on people in community. I think those are beautiful things to take away. Um, And also tell people how they can get involved and support Muse. Yes. So we have a website, uh, muse.org. We have a directory. So if you are looking for, say, an oboist in the uh, Los Angeles area and you're looking for folks of color, you would just type in because anyone can join the directory. Any person of color can join the directory, I mean. And uh, anyone can uh, look on the directory and kind of find folks that you might not have called before. Yep. We, we get so used to calling the same friends over and over to play in our bands and we have to get new friends, <laughs> <laughs> get to know new people. And you can donate on the website. Yeah, you can be a part Great. of our newsletter in, 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 uh, uh, in that way. I love it. It's such a, an important solution to a much wider 
issue. So kudos to you and the whole team for doing that. And bonus question, what was your favorite thing for you to play and for us to sing to when we were little? Do you have a favorite moment? Yeah, I have memories of being in your house playing stuff from Les Mis. And I remember I first learned about Yentl through you. So we would be on the piano bench and you'd be sitting next to me. You're (laughs) welcome. Papa, can you hear me? (laughs) To this day, Jess, I cannot think of Peace of Sky without thinking of you and being in your house. The support you gave, the support your mom gave, I just felt included. And it was just so important and so monumental (laughs) to me, Jess. I'm just so grateful. So thank you. Oh, man. It was so easy. It was easy to love you then. It's so easy to love you now. (laughs) Why hasn't Barbara Streisand called? We could do a little like, we can rekindle that moment. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Barbara. We'll fly down to Miami. (laughs) I love it. My friend, I adore you. Thank you for lending your genius, your spirit, your warmth, and your grace to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Jess. My heart could not be fuller (laughs) than to have spent that time with somebody I love and to share that somebody I love with you. He's, I told you, he's as gracious as he is a genius and he's a beautiful culmination of a lot of the conversations we've had throughout this season with folks. Number one, I think a big theme was about mentoring and championing other people, giving them access to rooms that you're in, championing their voice, supporting them as they speak up. I mean, obviously being invited into those spaces really impacted Alex. I think we can take that as a wonderful message and an actionable takeaway of like, how are we paying it forward and championing this next generation of voices in our lives, whatever that looks like. Having that generosity mindset, so important. And then I think that advice that Alex gave for folks that are looking to get their art out into the world, their story out into the world, even if you've never seen anybody like you produce the kind of thing that you want to make in the world, you still have to do it anyway. Don't wait for other people. I loved how he shared, you know, that Lin-Manuel wrote a musical that needed to exist. He needed to see Hamilton out in the world. It didn't exist prior. We can't wait for other people's approval. And probably along those same lines, what a great reminder to like, get that crappy first draft out, right? You can always go back and edit it. Just to hear Alex talk about seven or eight versions of music for Hamilton that he felt like were just fine, but then was able to like refine, go back, find his groove. What a great example of just doing it. And then maybe the biggest theme of all is this power of community. You know, we've created a really beautiful one here for this show and the power of community uplifts and transforms our lives and our stories. And it certainly did for Alex. You know, look for your creative partners to help you get your work out into the world. You know, when you click into a group of people that can support you, that see you where you feel like you fit, those are often the relationships that can help you change and challenge and rewrite those dominant stories. And if you're interested in learning more about dominant stories and how you can challenge and change and rewrite them, I teach workshops on this. You can always sign up at JessWiener.com and you can follow me on Instagram at I'm Jess Wiener. And please don't forget to write a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It super duper 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 helps us out. I can't believe it, but this is the last episode of our season. And I just wanted to say... Thank you. Thank you for the beautiful guests we've had on this show and their trust and their faith in me to navigate through some 
deep and nuanced and complicated conversations. Thank you for you all who have been listening and taking the time to write a review or send in an email and let me know how this has impacted you. And thank you for my friends at Shondaland and iHeart and Dove for creating a space at this time and this season of the world that we're in to have a conversation around something like dominant stories, something that I think we all universally can relate to, this sort of negative self-chatter in our heads and giving us time and space and thoughtfulness to unpack that, to provide resources for all of us to get better at challenging, changing, and rewriting. There is so much more fun and joy and love in here than I think sometimes even the title will have you believe. Um, the work of the work of changing yourself, of changing the way you think about yourself or changing the way you feel about your body, your image, your identity, your creativity, while it is hard, while it can be complex and intersectional, it is also really rewarding to give time to educating yourself, loving yourself, working on yourself. And um, I just feel so grateful to be a small part of your journey as you've been listening. And I hope we get to do it again. Remember, we are always learning, always growing, and it has been an ultimate joy and pleasure to do that learning and growing with you. Dominant Stories with Jess Wiener is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.